Hello and welcome to the Oncology Podcast, an Australian oncology perspective. For more info and to sign up to our weekly newsletter, visit our website, oncologynews.com.au. Thanks for listening. Hi, this is Rachel Babin. Welcome to another edition of the Oncology Journal Club. This week, Professor Eva Segalov gets us started with a presentation on cachexia. Eva is a medical oncologist and director of medical oncology at Monash Health in Melbourne, Australia. As usual, she is joined by Dr. Craig Underhill from Albury Wodonga and Professor Hans Prennant from Belgium. Craig chats with Dr. Christopher Steer, a geriatric oncology specialist, on papers presented at the recent ASCO meeting, including Ken Sue's paper on integrating geriatric assessment and management into cancer care, which Christopher hails as the Rolls-Royce model of cancer care in older adults. Hans presents some fascinating translational studies from nature, and we also have not one, not two, but three new segments this week. You may have noticed a little competitiveness between the team, so of course they had to have one each. We hope you enjoy another entertaining episode of the Oncology Journal Club. As ever, the links to all of the papers discussed today are available in the notes. This is Rachel Babin, and this is the Oncology Podcast. Hello everyone, we're now in the middle of June. How did that happen? And it's time for another Oncology Journal Club podcast. As usual, I'm joined by the wonderful Craig Underhill. Hello Eva, how are you? I'm great. Is that you, Vogel, New York? No, no, it is you, Craig. I just got mixed up. And all the way from Belgium, This week with four listeners, it's Hans Prennan. Hi, Eva. So today we've got another packed agenda to keep you up to date with what's happening in oncology and recent publications. I'm going to discuss a paper about cancer cachexia and another surprise paper. And then we have an interview by our raving reporter, uh, sorry, our roving reporter, Craig Underhill, talking to... Dr. Christopher Steer about the impactful geriatric oncology trials, three randomised trials reported at ASCO, really practice changing. And then we'll finish up with some hot bites. Hans, are you doing anything this episode at all? Of course, Eva. I was reading the Nature Medicine all week, so and I summarised the most important papers there. Fantastic. Trying to keep across not only the clinical, but the translational literature. So Eva, I think you're going to lead us off in this episode. Thanks, Craig. So this week I would like to present the ASCO guideline update for the management of cancer cachexia. First author, Eric Rowland, published in JCO on the 10th of June. I think this is an important paper for all oncologists and clinicians, allied health, nursing to read and be familiar with. It's a little bit sobering, actually, because we haven't made many advances at all in this field. So I'll take you through this paper in a little bit of detail. This was a group who did a systematic review of the literature, and they looked at evidence for three different types of interventions, nutritional, pharmacologic, and a category of other that included things such as exercise. So they did a PubMed and Cochrane search, and they looked only for RCTs 
or systematic reviews of RCTs, and they went back as far as 1966. They found 20 systematic reviews and 13 additional RCTs. Now, the purpose of printing these guidelines is to provide an evidence-based guidance for the optimal approach to cancer cachexia. And just to remind you, cancer cachexia is a multifactorial syndrome characterised by loss of appetite, weight and skeletal muscle, leading to fatigue, functional impairment, increased treatment-related toxicity, poor quality of life and reduced survival. And if you look at all malignancies together, cachexia affects approximately half of all patients with advanced cancer. Now, definitions have changed over time, with the earlier definitions really much more focused on weight. But there are now uh, some standard criteria, and there are really three phases that have been defined for cachexia. The pathophysiology of cachexia is complex and has been studied widely with very little clear understanding. Certainly reduced food intake is a major part but comes from many different stimuli including altered hypothalamic control, the symptoms of the cancer itself or the symptoms of treatment. But additionally, you've got aberrant metabolism. And that's, in fact, what distinguishes cancer cachexia from simple malnutrition. You've got neurohormonal dysregulation. You've got elevated energy expenditure and increased catabolism. And you've got a whole pro-inflammatory cytokine profile associated with the catabolic state. So the goal of identifying and treating cancer cachexia is to improve treatment tolerability, improve survival and optimise quality of life for patients with advanced cancer. So again, these guidelines wanted to look at the evidence for interventions that are commonly studied and sometimes thought to be more useful than perhaps they are. The review answers three clinical questions. They all start with the sentence amongst adult patients with advanced cancer and loss of appetite, body weight and or lean body mass. Are outcomes such as weight, lean body mass, appetite, physical function or quality of life improved by? And then they had the three categories, nutritional intervention, pharmacological intervention and other of which they mainly had exercise. Now, the strength of the recommendation against each is really pretty sobering. There were only three interventions where the strength of the evidence was moderately in favour. There were many interventions where there, no recommendation could be made because the strength of evidence was very low. And there are a number of interventions where the actual evidence points that there is moderate evidence against using these interventions. So I'll just go through them because I think they are relevant. Dietary counselling came out as moderately in favour, low strength of evidence, moderate benefit and low harms. Parenteral or enteral nutrition used routinely, there was actually moderate evidence against use of this with low evidence, low benefit and moderate to high harms. Omega-3 fatty acids, 
vitamins, minerals and other dietary supplements. There was no recommendation because of low evidence, low benefit, but low harm. Now of the various pharmacological interventions, there were two where there was moderate evidence in favour. One is progesterone analogues and the second is corticosteroids. There are a large list of other medications that are sometimes given for cancer cachexia where there was either no recommendation or actually weak or moderate evidence against using these. And this included olanzapine, androgens, thalidomide, non-steroidals, cyproheptidine, cannabinoids, melatonin, TNF inhibitors and hydrazine. For exercise, the strength of the recommendation comes out at no recommendation with low evidence, unknown benefits and unknown harms. Remember, this is in the cancer cachexia population. So basically, we have a very common problem across all cancers where despite a lot of interest and research, we really have very little information. One of the important parts of the paper is the section that talks about patient caregiver and clinician communication. And this is something that I think is worth thinking about. They list five key points to discuss with patients and their carers. The first is that loss of appetite is common and may be a result of the cancer process itself. These are things that we can tell families and patients because that may not be obvious to them. The second is that trying to force a patient to eat is usually counterproductive. And the third is that in most patients with advanced cancer and cachexia, providing additional calories by feeding tubes and or intravenously does not improve outcomes. The fourth is that trying to make a patient eat when they have marked appetite loss can lead to decreased social interactions and increased patient distress. And they actually quote stories of patients pretending to be asleep when relatives come because they know that the relatives will try and make them eat something. And the final point is that for caregivers, it may be best to listen to and support patients in a variety of other ways instead of trying to talk them into eating more. So these may sound obvious, but they are things that certainly in my clinical practice, you do spend quite a lot of time talking to relatives and to patients about the distress that comes out of this uh, problem of not eating. Eva, that's really interesting. So just a note, though, one of the interventions was about progesterone. So, of course, we'd caution against that because of the thromboembolism risk. So some of the trainees may not be aware of that. It's not the drugs that we often use now for that problem. But um, very interesting. And I've got another question for you. Is academic medicine making mid-career women physicians invisible? Good question. Well, Craig, you've obviously been reading the Journal of Women's Health, Volume 29, Number 2, 2020, because there was an article entitled Just That. It's a perspective piece, and I'm so glad you're interested in it, because we are in a time looking at equity, and gender equity is actually still an issue. This paper talks about the invisibility of mid-career women, And we know already that women hold less leadership positions in medicine, despite 
comprising more than 50% of the healthcare workforce. It goes through data looking at the percentage of women in specialty societies and colleges. It goes through bias, looks at microaggression against women. And in every metric it looks at, whether it's leadership positions, first authorship publications, research funding, evaluations, awards, promotions and salary, the data is really quite striking about how much inequity there is. And what this paper says is that women in mid-career just tend to fade away. They've, They've fought too hard for so long and they are overtaken in the competition for these higher level positions and they are becoming invisible. The data is there, the amount of NIH grants and then the paper talks about some positive action that you can do to counter this, things like the Athena Swan program. And recently the NIH director, Francis Collins, declared that he would no longer participate in mammals. Do you know what a mammal is, Craig? A male animal by the sounds of it. It's an all-male panel. Ah. And how often did we see, even on the recent ASCO on Twitter, a whole lot of uh, seminars and you'd see there was one seminar from a US centre, I think it had 10 speakers, all male. Yes, and um, our own learned societies like MOGA and COSA, unfortunately, have been very guilty of the same thing over the years. But Eva, maybe the most important question, does the paper also suggest any solutions for this problem? Yes, so thanks. There are a number of solutions. The first one, of course, is being aware of the problem and not rolling your eyes and saying, oh, not this again, and and there's women everywhere, and, you know, I can name two women who have done X or Y, so there isn't a problem. It talks about really needing to come as a movement, not just from women, but from men. So for example, um, making sure that in your panels, in your staff, on your papers, that there is gender equity. And of course, there's now a big focus on equity of many other groups as well, cultural and ethnic, and particularly our First Nations people. There is a program called the Athena Swan Charter, And that's a top-down change intervention. So it puts the responsibility on the leaders rather than just waiting for women to sort of filter up through the ranks. So, Hans, I'm going to send you some information on that after the show. Thank you, Eva. Good. Well, having said that, I'd like you to look at the papers you're about to present and tell us how many women are on it because now we're going to have a quick update on some very key papers in translational research published recently in Nature Medicine. Thanks, Eva. So I was reading the Nature Medicine this week and I selected two papers. Unfortunately, I cannot tell you how many females were on the list because from some names, I don't have no clue whether they're female or male. But Let me select these two papers. So the first paper has a very complex title. It's called Geospatial Immune Variability Illuminates Differential Evolution of Lung Adenocarcinoma. 
So I will try to explain this in an easy way to my four Belgian listeners so that they can understand this as well. The main question in many tumor types is how do the cancer cells escape the immune system? So what these authors did is they did exome and RNA sequencing, and they combined this with spatial histology in 100 patients with non-small cell lung cancer. So this is part of the TRACER-X study. So to summarize it a very clear way, it was a team of pathologists and computer scientists that developed an artificial intelligence system and that can make a differentiation between cancer cells and cancer immune cells. And then they looked at cold regions and hot regions. So the hot regions are the areas where the number of immune cells were high in comparison with the number of cancer cells, while the cold ones were where the number of immune cells were low. And actually what they found is that tumors with more than one immune cold region, they had a higher risk of relapse. And this was independent of the size stage, so it gives extra information on areas in the tumor that already have developed a mechanism to hide from the immune system. And I think it could be a tool in the future that could help us to predict the patients who have the highest risk of relapse. So I think it's a very promising paper, very nice way of a collaboration between computer scientists and in this case pathologists to make a very good tool for future research. The next paper I selected was also Nature Medicine, was in June, so very recently published, and it's called a single-arm open-label phase 2 trial of pembrolizumab in patients with leptomeningeal carcinomatosis. It's actually a paper with very few patients, but it's in an important disease area because we know that patients with leptomeningeal carcinomatosis have a very poor outcome. And most commonly we see it in breast and lung cancer, but as we have better treatments in all tumor types, we see it also more and more in other tumor types because they survive much longer these days. So it, it is something that every oncologist will see in his clinical practice. What is the classical treatment? We all know we can do radiotherapy, we can give intrathecal chemotherapy, we can give systemic therapy, but there you have the problem that there is limited access to the cerebrospinal fluid. And there is actually no standard of care for this treatment. And we know that many checkpoint inhibitors have shown activity in brain metastasis. So I think the reason for the study is very clear. They want to find out whether checkpoint inhibition on itself does something in patients with leptomeningeal carcinomatosis. And they reported treatment of 20 patients. Strikingly, Eva, and now you have to listen very carefully, they were all female, these patients. So 20 patients, all female, 17 patients have breast cancer one lung, one ovarian, one small cell lung cancer. So in general, most patients had breast cancer. What was for me a bit striking is that 95% of the patients were ECOG 0 and ECOG 1, while you can expect that sometimes these have worse performance status. They were heavily pretreated, and 70% of the patients, they received prior intracranial radiation. So they could be pretreated with radiotherapy. This is an important thing. The study was positive because the median survival was 3.6 months in a heavily pretreated population. Is this, this is quite good. Of course, it also has some limitations, the study, because most patients were breast cancer, so we cannot elaborate to other tumor types. And it's difficult to compare this survival with historical series because it's a very heterogeneous group. But still, I think the results are quite promising given the little toxicity of this treatment. 
So I think that we're always looking for treatment for leptomeningeal disease. And I think it's really hard to assess the ECOG status in these people. It's a good point you make that these people have very good ECOG performance status. I don't think that's my clinical experience, but often people have had recently very, very good ECOG performance status. It is good to have a relatively non-toxic option. I wonder if as we start using IO earlier and earlier for many of these tumours that by the time people get to having leptomeningeal disease, they will have already had an IO. Okay, now it's time to go to a really brilliant and fascinating interview with Craig and Dr. Christopher Steer on the ASCO Geriatric Oncology Update. All right, so continuing our post-ASCO theme on the Oncology Journal Club, episode five, is a focus on geriatric oncology. So we're looking at a few papers that were discussed as part of a clinical symposium on geriatric oncology at ASCO. So, you know, the usual focus was something around biomarkers or biology, but this was a much more clinical focus. So we were going to have on uh, King Sue, who presented a paper from a trial conducted in Melbourne, but happily, King's and his partner's baby came in a little bit unexpectedly early. And so we're really thankful that Dr. Christopher Steer, a colleague at Border Medic Oncology, uh, was able to stand in short notice. So thank you so much, Christopher, for giving up some time this evening to to have a chat to us on the Oncology Journal Club. Thank you, Craig. It's a pleasure to be here. I've uh, followed uh, King's career for some time now, and it's fantastic to see a geriatric oncologist from Melbourne take the stage at uh, such a prestigious meeting at ASCO with his uh, with his research. It's, a, it's an honour to talk about it today. Great. Thank you, Christopher. So for those who don't know, Christopher is a national and international expert in geriatric oncology, has had an interest in geriatric oncology for a number of years, and he's an avid tweeter. And in fact, I looked up today, Christopher, you've got 3,058 followers, which is a factor of 20-fold more than Professor Eva Segalov from Melbourne, who has only 158. So uh, well done, Christopher, reflecting that broad interest in this field, I think. Thanks. Thank you, Craig. Guess what? Eva's certainly done that in reasonable time, I must admit. She's only a fairly recent convert to the media, but she's certainly active in it now. We're, we're sort of trying to um, mentor her into this media space. So anyway, <laughs> let's get on with the discussion uh, about this session. So it was an interesting session. So let's talk about the paper from Eastern Health first. So King was the presenter, and this is a study called Integrate, an integrated geriatric assessment and treatment in older people with cancer planned for systemic anti-cancer therapy. So Christopher, could you just outline the study and tell us what the intervention was and some of the outcomes? Yes, this was a, a randomised study that King performed in his role as a geriatric oncologist, and uh, he randomised uh, patients over the age of 70 years with solid tumours uh, or diffuse large B-cell lymphomas who are about to start chemotherapy, immunotherapy or targeted therapy uh, to either integrated oncogeriatric care or usual care. And the key aspect of this study, his outcome measures, uh, was health-related quality of life. So his primary outcome uh, was a patient-reported outcome and that made this uh, quite a unique study. 
So what exactly is this integrated geriatric assessment? Is that one tool that's used or is it more than that? This was a 60-minute appointment, essentially, with King and colleagues as geriatricians, and they looked at the things that a geriatrician normally does rather than an oncologist. They gave supportive care information, encouraged physical activity, optimal nutrition, and talked about advanced care planning. But then they produced personalised interventions, such as management of comorbidities, especially things like cognitive impairment. These are things that aren't routinely done in, uh, in usual care in, in oncology. I know that William Dale, one of the the key investigators of the Cancer and Ageing Research Group uh, in the USA and City of Hope, described King's study as being the Cadillac care model. Uh, I guess in Australia, we'd call it the Rolls-Royce model of cancer care in older adults. Essentially, it was a geriatrician-led intervention and assessment, and this is quite different from usual oncology care. So the outcomes showed an improved quality of life, and also has some interesting outcomes, such as decreased unplanned hospitalisation and less early treatment discontinuation in the patients who had the, the geriatrician-led interventions. Fantastic. We're going to put this into context, I think, when we just briefly cover some of the other papers. So, you know, in Australia, we have the optimal care pathways, which have defined endpoints around time from diagnosis to starting treatment and other, endpoint, other timing endpoints. So was the geriatric assessment done prior to seeing the oncologist or in parallel or how how's that going to work in practice this is a 60 minute intensive session with a specialist with a geriatrician as part of integrated oncogeriatric care uh, whilst king is a geriatric oncologist it's my understanding that this was primarily a, a geriatrician assessment and therefore it would be in addition to the usual oncological care so this would create certain difficulties, certainly in the model, to deliver this in a timely fashion. What I think it does show is that for the first time is that concentrating on these issues in older adults does make a difference, especially to their quality of life. However, it certainly may be difficult to perform this in certainly all older adults with cancer because, you know, as you know, Craig, this is almost the majority of patients with the diagnosis of cancer in, uh, in this country. Therefore, one of the challenges of this would be to work out who would benefit the most. Should we do screening tests to determine the patients who are most in need of a geriatric assessment? These are things that need to be uh, certainly worked out in the future. It is, however, a driver for this activity. We've been uh, trying to integrate geriatric oncology principles into uh, cancer care for some time now. And this is yet another example, or there's further evidence, if you like, that it makes real differences and real differences to patients, such as in their quality of life. Fantastic. So let's just quickly look at a couple of the other papers in this clinical symposium. The first one is a single centre study from the City of Hope, which was a geriatric assessment-driven intervention or GAIN on chemotherapy toxicity in older patients with cancer, a randomised controlled trial. So I see this was... Slightly different population, slightly different intervention, and slightly different outcomes measured compared to King's study. Yeah, so this was a study in uh, slightly younger patients, 65 years and older, patients with solid tumours starting new chemotherapy. It was a larger study, uh, 600 patients. And the end point in this case was in the incidence of grade 3 to 5 toxicity. 
the studies from the United States such as this do set these endpoints, if you like, that are achievable. Reduction in, in toxicity being an important one. This is specifically relating to patients on chemotherapy. It would appear that this study involved the use of a nurse practitioner-led geriatric oncology multidisciplinary team. There was an oncologist involved, but the geriatric nurse practitioner and other members of allied health, such as occupational health, physical therapy and pharmacy. Using this approach, it would appear that there was significant reduction in the incidence of grade 3 to 5 toxicity in the older patients starting treatment. So I noticed there was also some secondary endpoints like in King's study with respect to hospitalizations. Yes, so this, this study showed a reduction in grade 3 to 5 chemotherapy-related toxicities, but also a reduction in secondary endpoints such as increased advanced directive completion and uh, advanced directive completion and decreased hospitalizations due to grade 4 toxicity. Yeah. So again, it seems that the patients were sent to the geriatrician prior to seeing the oncologist, or again, was that, do you know if that was done in parallel, just thinking of the practicalities of this kind of approach? Once again, this, this study design was a single centre study of a geriatric assessment, and it does not appear that they did a screening test, a short screening test prior to the geriatric assessment. I think it was done in all patients. And then uh, in the gain arm, they had the geriatric assessment-driven interventions, which showed the difference to patients having standard of care. This would be achievable, I think, in a nurse practitioner-led model uh, in a well-resourced centre such as the City of Hope. Great. So the third final one we'll talk about is a geriatric assessment intervention to reduce treatment toxicity in older patients with advanced cancer, which was done at the University of Rochester Cancer Centre, but in their community oncology research program, which was a cluster randomised clinical trial. So again, slightly different age of patients, similar intervention and similar endpoints. Yes, this is a a multi-centre cluster randomised trial in community oncology centres using a, a geriatric assessment that can be web-based web and can be found on the uh, on the website mycarg.org from the Cancer and Ageing Research Group, uh, a, a key organisation in the United States uh, led by Supriya Mahile and uh, William Dale that uh, support this kind of research. So it's an important uh, multi-centre trial of the geriatric assessment prior, once again, to chemotherapy. And again, their endpoint in this time in patients over the age of 70 years was reduction in uh, adverse events due to treatment. I think the importance about this one is that it is in multiple community oncology centres. It's a large trial of 700 patients, and it showed that you can reduce uh, grade 3 to 5 toxicity by 20%. I also noticed that they tried to measure survival difference as well. Yes, this, this is interesting. I think it's a little bit early to tell, uh, tell this. They do say that we reduced toxicity and had no impact on survival, but um, that, and that is at six months. So it certainly appears to be that case at the moment, but I think we doing it a little bit longer um, to say that for sure. So do you think it's biologically plausible that this intervention would show a survival difference? So they had reduced grade 3 to 5 toxicity and usually had a reduced dose of chemotherapy at cycle 1. So what it would appear to me that is the patients who had the geriatric assessment given to the oncologist, that led to a decreased treatment at cycle 1 usually, which led to this decrease in toxicity. 
And the, the investigators saying, well, that didn't lead to any overall adverse survival at six months. Sometimes people with these kind of studies say, well, what, what wouldn't the um, geometric assessment be expected to improve survival? In fact, we're not looking at that endpoint. We don't expect an improvement in survival. Instead, we're looking at things like reduced in toxicity and therefore increased quality of life as endpoints. And I think the researchers in this have done a good job to pick the right endpoints that will then show the difference. So thanks, Christopher. So three interesting papers. I did notice on social media that someone tweeted, wow, if, if geriatric assessment was a drug, the FDA would approve it, would fast track it. Do you think geriatric assessment is now prime time? Do you think it's something that we should be doing routinely in older patients? I think the evidence is building that that is the case. Adequate assessment yields appropriate treatment. As we can see here, reduction in toxicity without any impact in, uh, in patients' overall survival and improvement in important things like health-related quality of life and maintenance of independence. I think this excellent session from ASCO to 2020 is evidence that information is being gathered and hopefully with some of the other endpoints that you mentioned, such as reduced hospitalisation, reduced costs, together with increased health-related quality of life, we might be able to convince the funders of this kind of care that uh, uh, the adequate assessment of older adults with cancer is something that not just should be done, but must be done. So I know that with that reduction in hospitalisation, surely it's a cost-effective intervention. So I know that you and others have researched other models. So do you think that all of our patients should see a geriatrician or do you think there's other ways that we can screen out those who do need to be seen? Well, whilst King Sue's uh, Rolls-Royce model of everyone seeing a geriatrician might be uh, optimal. It's not feasible, certainly in our environment in a rural and regional cancer centre. Therefore, around the world, uh, other ways of thought of, of moving forward, such as performing a simple screening tool. Uh, one that comes to mind is the G8 tool, uh, developed in France, as you know, which could uh, be given to all patients over a certain age, let's say 65 or 70. And then if they score as needing further assessment, a more comprehensive approach is required. That's certainly one model that may help with resource allocation around the world. Thank you. We'll talk about uh, the study we do at the next study we're doing at the Cancer Centre, Craig, of, of my catchy title of, I think it's catchy anyway, of um, Cancer Care in the Instagram Era. Yes, can we, can we use photographs to look after our patients better? So we're going to get them to take photos of something um, of their identity that means something to them, like their dog or their family, and then a photograph of their house and transport and just see if, see if it integrates into the assessment, basically getting to know them a bit better. Wow. So uh, That'll be plenary in ESCO that, that we'll talk about. That's right. Don't do Snapchat. No, that's right. No, it won't be. No, it, it's, not, it's not going to go. The ethics is going to be... Interesting, but it's been done done before in certain in certain certainly in aged care in dementia and stuff where they use photographs. But uh, we shall we shall see. We've got a student starting February next year with us to do some qualitative work. So it's only fifteen patients. Fantastic. So look, a really interesting session, a really practical, thought provoking session, and uh, it's nice to see an Australian study presented and Australian showing some leadership, including yourself, Christopher. So thank you very much. I did want to mention. Uh, Christopher is on the executive of the International Geriatric Oncology Society and I, I see that there's um, an advanced course in geriatric oncology planned for Canberra in January 2021 if that's going to go ahead 
if there's any trainees or others interested, they should have a look on the SIOG website about that course. Yes, thanks, Craig. Uh, that was meant to be held in Canberra in April, but like everything else has, has been cancelled. Hopefully we'll, we will be able to... Don't say the forward. C word. We're trying to avoid the C word on this podcast. <laughs> That's right. Hopefully we'll be able to proceed in, 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 in January. We've got um, some amazing local experts We'll probably either fly some uh, some faculty in from SIOG or at the, at the very least we'll have them uh, on web links. But, uh, yes, it's an advanced course in uh, in geriatric oncology run by the International Society, SIOG, and uh, we'd certainly welcome uh, any uh, participants. We had a good number of people already registered, so hopefully that interest will be even greater uh, due to work like uh, King, Susan and others presented at ASCO. Thanks, Craig. No, thank you. Thanks for coming on. I'll let you get, get back to your lovely family and um, hopefully we'll talk again about some important geriatric oncology studies on the Oncology Journal Club because the reality is this is half of our patients' population, so it's a very important issue that cuts across all the tumour streams. Thank you. So, Craig, I can only describe that interview as brilliant. Thank you, Eva. Do you have some quick bites for us, though? I do. And I've got a new segment as well. So firstly, the quick bites. The first one almost achieved gender equity on the authorship. And the first author was Sheila Rayo from the Marsden. Uh, and this is a paper called, entitled The International Rare Cancers Initiative, a multi-centre randomised phase two trial of cisplatin and fluorouracil versus carboplatin and paclitaxel in advanced anal cancer, the INTERACT initiative. Why did I pick this? Because Eva told me to, because there's an author on there called Eva Segalov from Melbourne. Congratulations, Eva, and also our very own Amitish Roy from Adelaide, who was an author on this collaboration. So interestingly, this is in advanced anal cancer, which is, of course, a rare cancer. Only 10% of patients have disseminated disease. And in fact, this is the first randomized trial ever published in this uh, population. Recruited uh, across 60 centers, it took actually four years to recruit 90 patients reflecting the rareness of this cancer. Um, and of course, it was underpowered to really demonstrate survival advantage. But nevertheless, interestingly, the carboplatin and paclitaxel group uh, did have a trend towards a significantly better uh, survival with 20 months versus 12.3 for the cisplatin and 5-FU. And one of the advantages of the carboplatin paclitaxel uh, treatment is less toxicity and there's no need to have the um, pick lines and 5-FU, etc. And of course, cisplatin, we all know, is a relatively toxic chemotherapy. So... Um, Going forward, this group has decided uh, that this the reference arm for future trials would be carboplatin and paclitaxel. So, I mean, just setting up an international uh, collaboration like this is of merit in its own right. But in contrast to your earlier discussion about cancer cachexia, there was an olanzapine randomised phase two showing a vast improvement in nausea and vomiting and quality of life for people receiving olanzapine for non-chemo-related advanced cancer, nausea and vomiting. But I did just want to wrap up from ASCO, uh, some rarer cancers and tumours. So as a wrap up to 
ASCO, I just want to mention a couple from the ovarian cancer sessions. So Kenichiwa and Amidato to the JCOG group in Japan, who published an important study comparing three weekly cisplatin with weekly cisplatin in high-risk patients receiving chemoradiotherapy postoperatively in squamous cell carcinoma. This is a practice tip, I guess. There's been a lot of controversy about which cisplatin regimen to use. So finally, someone's done a randomized trial in a proper dose of cisplatin and shown that it's just as effective uh, with less toxicity. And two papers from the ovarian cancer session, one final update from the SOLO2 study confirming a, a, about an extra year of survival for patients with BRCA mutations and platinum-sensitive relapsed ovarian cancer who received maintenance filaparib. And finally, a follow-up to our previous discussion about these new antibody drug conjugates, this time in platinum-agnostic ovarian cancer. So that's a new term I haven't heard before. Platinum-agnostic meaning it can be either platinum-refractory or sensitive. This was a study of Mervituximab sorovtansin, a folate receptor alpha targeting antibody drug conjugate. So about 70% of ovarian cancers overexpress the folate receptor. And this is an antibody with a payload of a tubulin targeting agent. And this study had results in a phase two that are as high or higher than anything we've seen in the ovarian cancer space. So this is a very much an unmet need. And this drug's been given fast-track approval by the FDA, so an interesting molecule. So, Craig, you said that name rather slowly. What was that drug called again? Mervituximab Mervituximab sorovtansin. Hans, can you say that? For me, I can't understand, Craig. I was so scared you were going to ask me that question. <laughs> we did get some feedback from a listener saying that the best part of the podcast was listening to us trying to pronounce some of these new drug names. So where's your new section, Craig? It's not long bites, is it? So we have a new segment. PBS Update. With Craig Underhill. So for our Australian listeners, a new combination listed on the PBS just in the last week, a triplet combination, lenalidomide, bortezomib, dexamethasone, previously untreated patients with multiple myeloma. Multiple myeloma has seen rapid advances in recent years, and this triplet combination was approved. The paper um, was actually published in The Lancet in 2016, so it's only taken four years, but this paper showed more than 12 months extra survival for multiple myeloma patients. So anybody else has a new segment here? Yes, Hans, I do. Hit it, Craig. Investor Update. So as we all know, breaking oncology news comes through the financial sector. And this week we had two important announcements. One is that Abema Cyclib or Venezio from Eli Lilly and Company reported that this significantly reduced the risk of cancer returning in people with high risk, hormone positive, HER2 negative, early breast cancer. So a positive adjuvant CDK4-6 study 
That's all we know. And in the second piece of news came from Roche talking about Tocentric in combination with chemotherapy that included a Braxane. Of course, the press releases are in uh, all with the company names. It met its primary endpoint of improved pathological complete response, regardless of PDL1 status, as initial treatment for patients with early triple negative breast cancer. So a neoadjuvant study, we look forward to those being presented in the oncology scientific literature. So what was the name of that first drug, Eva? I didn't quite catch that. Abemacyclib. Abemacyclib. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> so Eva, where's my segment? Well, have you got anything to say, Hans? Yes, Craig, I do. The FDA approved the HPV vaccine Gardasil 9 for prevention of head and neck cancer. So the approval doesn't change the recommendations about who should get the vaccine, which is already recommended for females and males aged 9 to 45 to prevent cervical, vulvar, vaginal and anal cancer, as well as genital warts. But previously, cancers of the head and neck, mainly those of the tonsils and throat, have been left off the list. So this is, I think, a big change. Well done, Hans. And well done, all of us. That brings us to the end of yet another Oncology Journal Club podcast. We hope you're enjoying this. And thanks to those who've sent comments. We love them all. We'll be back next week. Keep safe and see you later. Thanks, Eva. You were brilliant. <laughs> You've been listening to the Oncology Podcast. If you enjoyed today's edition and would like to subscribe, head over to our website, oncologynews.com.au, and sign up to our newsletter. Thanks for listening. Relugolix, relugolix, relugolix. Trastuzuma derukste kan, trastuzuma op de rukste kan, trastuzuma derukste kan.